Thanks for tuning in to the Breaking the Frame podcast, where we seek to free our minds from the prisons of fixed worldviews. I'm your host, Travis Mann, and in this episode, I interview Paul Millard, a prolific creator focused on our relationship to work. We cover content creation, work beliefs, existential and health crises, beliefs about doctors, and written self-reflection. I hope you find the conversation beneficial. So this is Breaking the Frame, episode zero. I'm here with Paul Millard. Paul is a good friend of mine and is also, uh, man, he's a creator. That's the best way that I could describe him right now. I didn't want to talk about uh, all of his impressive credentials because that's the way that people typically talk about other people and that wouldn't be very appropriate for Breaking the Frame now, would it? So Paul's identity for this podcast is creator. We're going to ignore the fact that he killed it at UConn, went to MIT, worked at BCG, McKinsey, all sorts of different places. Paul, how you doing? I'm doing pretty good today, Travis. Excited um, to be here for your first uh, podcast, having been someone that's pushed you in this direction. It's true. So Paul was the... The person, and this is actually a place where I think is good to start. You just released your hundredth uh, newsletter, not your hundredth piece of writing, right? This is the hundredth newsletter issue, so probably more than a hundred pieces of writing. How many podcasts now? How many have you done? I think fifty or sixty. Fifty or sixty. Wow, I'm just a chump compared to Paul. That's something you'll find throughout this conversation. So Paul really, he broke the frame for me in terms of like content creation. He, he stated it like this. He said, there are all of these people out there who are creating in, in bad faith in an opportunistic way, right? So even if you put out just absolute shit, like this podcast might end up being, I'm not sure yet. We'll see once we get to the end. But even if you're putting out absolute shit, if you're doing it in an earnest way, then you're benefiting society by drowning out the opportunists, the people who would seek to exploit others through, you know, manipulation through content and stuff. So that's what your hundredth issue was kind of about, right? Was urging people to create more. Yeah. I don't even know if it's in bad faith. I like to start the assumption with people are acting in good faith. Um, Mm -hmm. Of course, being a little skeptical uh, of that, but, people have this gut negative reaction to creating and sharing on the internet. Um, Because I think we all grew up in this transaction economy where people do try to scam you, do try to take advantage of you, do try to exploit you. So we're all like naturally on guard, right? Yeah. And weirdly, We've learned to trust big organizations and brands. That is weird. And they've built up this credibility and it's not weird to open a checking account at Wells Fargo, right? Yeah. Even though Which is if you just do a search of their history in the last three to five years, they are just categorically defrauding customers. This is constantly, this is crazy. Um, and individuals, as soon as they get, hey, check out my writing, people are like, what is this person doing? What, 
who do they think? What's they their are? motivation? Yeah, they want exactly. our money. Who do they they think want they our are? money now. Um, yeah. So the, there's all these layers, and I don't think I've fully unpacked all the layers, but what I've found is that most people, if you dig deep enough, or they've had some sort of like shift, crisis, awakening, whatever you might call it, they realize there are these things they want to give to the world. Um, for some people, it can just be very natural things in their life path that intersect with their work or even having a family is a way of giving back, right? And for other people, it's like writing, creating things. And it's easier than ever to create things. Um, you can create a cool PowerPoint deck. Uh, it's cheesy, but it's easy. Um, instead of maybe 20 years ago, if you're painting, right, you got to go get the supplies and you got to like get the materials. You don't even know like what materials you're supposed to use. Digitally, you open medium.com and you just start writing. Yep. Right? Um, That's incredible. So people are drawn to it, but what holds people back is this shame and this, who am I to be doing this? I don't have the credentials. Um, and there's a lot of layers where this comes from. Um, we get shamed by people who have the credentials who tell us we shouldn't do this. Um, we get shamed by our internal monologue saying, um, who are you to be doing this? This is not a proper way to earn money. Um, yeah. And I think what we're seeing is the broader conversation I'm interested in is we're shifting away from stable full-time work. Um, mm. If anything, that was an illusion, a healthy myth maybe, um, to something that is more precarious. But in that, there's these fragments of being able to create and more opportunity. And I'm interested in how do you enable people to do that in a healthy way. Yeah. So one of the things that I've seen a lot of, and I think that you've been a proponent of, at least in our conversations offline, is learning in public. So one of the, the easy ways around uh, kind of the credentialism, as I like to call it, of like, who are you to be, you know, writing about this? Well, I'm a learner. I'm writing about learning. And, you know, I did this thing and uh, I read this book. This is what I learned from it. Right. And gradually you do that enough and you become the authority on some sort of topic. That was a big a frame breaking moment for me. Like, oh, I can learn in public. Yeah. One of so my experience, I was in strategy consulting and I was working at a top firm, Boston Consulting Group. And I did all this report like research and like really deep. I was reading books and reading all the latest, like thinking on organizational change. And I was discovering these new ideas that they weren't really covered and was kind of told, ah, we can't really do that. I can't sell it. And one thing I realized through this process is I was becoming like the most knowledgeable person in this entire firm about these topics. I read, I wrote this report um, and I gained a ton of confidence through this. I had a really good mentor coaching me in it. Um, but at the end of the day, I didn't even get my name on the report. Uh, they put mm. partners who were able to like sell work on the report. I got like a nice thank you in the acknowledgments. But that kind of did two things for me. I think one, it kind of frustrated me. It's like, well, this is so stupid. Like <laughs> that nobody cares about 
highlighting or helping me thrive or cultivate my yeah. learning. And two, like these, the people whose names on this report don't really understand what's in it. <laughs> yeah. So I can just write. Why not? Yeah, no, it's um, true. If they're doing it, why the hell can't you? Well, and I think I was working in my job after that was working with CEOs, board members, uh, famous names you'd recognize, uh, founders of companies. And some of these people are deeply curious and interesting and smart. Many of them aren't really that deep in a lot of things. They're kind of like a generic business archetype, right? Yeah. Um, and I would talk about certain things with these people and they'd be like, oh, wow, that's fascinating. And they'd say like, oh, can we get Paul in the next call? He was fun to talk to and be like, oh, wow. These are the people I thought were like way smarter than me that because they had credentials. Mm. Um, but they're interested in me. Yet my boss tells me I'm too naive and not ready enough to share publicly. And it was like, what is going on? And I think yeah, that's that all kind of led a bunch of other stuff to me just cutting the cord, basically, going out on my own. Yeah, two things are coming up for me. The first one is I'm remembering from National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation when uh, his boss comes up to him and he wants a report on the non-nutritive cereal varnish that uh, he created so that he can present it at a trade show. When he has no idea. I mean, I don't really know what a non-nutritive cereal varnish <laughs> is either, but yeah, that, that like popped into my head. And the other thing was that back in the day, this is something that I've kind of wrestled with around credentialism is that back in the day you had almost like an, a master apprenticeship uh, mode. And that was the way that you develop these credentials. Now we have, and, and anybody who wanted to break in on that, as long as they could find the means to educate themselves within a given area and prove their work, they, they could ascend to like the highest levels of like blacksmithing, right. things of that nature. Nowadays, you have to have like licenses, you have to prove a number of hours and so on and so forth. So like some blacksmithing genius could be I don't know if there's actually a license for blacksmithing, but there's definitely a license for haircutting. So there could be right. some person out there who's doing the most amazing haircuts in the world, but they didn't go through the proper channels. And now they're cut out from being able to start a business around cutting hair. Right. And part of that is health safety, you know, with haircuts and stuff like that. But there are other areas where it's in, in intentionally set up as a moat around a particular trade or type of business to block people out from doing it well part of this is the confusion about what we're actually doing yeah. uh, most people think that we can understand what's happening at work and measure performance mm -hmm. um, simply we can't we yeah the more abstracted the work is and the more knowledge work it is it's almost impossible to measure performance you can probably get a good sense of the extremes, who's doing a crappy job and who's really good. Yep. Um, but I've worked with some of the best organizations. You, There's no way to tell. Yeah. Um, so what happens is we're looking 
we're we have two separate hierarchies happening in institutions. You have a competence hierarchy and you have a dominance hierarchy. Dominance hierarchy is just power, right? Um, mm -hmm. And increasingly people are playing that and we're mistaking dominance for competence, yeah. right? Um, I think what we're seeing in like people creating solo is the emergence of a new type of hierarchy called a prestige hierarchy, yep. right? So dominance is also linked with prestige, um, but so mm. is competence. Um, but creating on your own in these networks, often the prestige is elevated in certain ways related to you performing certain actions, right? Yeah. So we don't have a lot of legibility to understand um, competence in large scale organizations. So we default to just looking at rank, right? Mm -hmm. Makes perfect sense. But creating in like a creator economy, you're going to look at people's behavior. How generous are they? How much do they give? How much are they showing up? How much are they contributing to the conversation? That actually gets you prestige because you're demonstrating competence as well. Um, so you can have people that I'm probably, I probably do well in terms of gaining status through generosity and giving and helping others. Um, but it doesn't translate to the old school metrics of like dominance, power and money. Um, it certainly mm. hasn't translated to money yet. Um, this is reminding me of something that Tiago Forte tweeted out that basically if you find one other partner who's kind of in the same space as you and you just retweet each other's work or, you know, share it between each other, you can instantly raise each other's prestige, which directly maps onto the way that Google worked, at least in its original manifestation of raising the sites that were linked to by most other sites, yeah, right. raising their prestige. And so literally you come together with a group of like-minded individuals or even people who disagree with each other, right? And you start playing off of each other, you can raise each other's prestige significantly. Yeah, I think that may run out at some point, right? But I yeah. think it's still so early, right? Like advertising, Google and Facebook dominate digital advertising, right? Yep. You can't be two small players and like elevate each other and try to compete with them. You just can't. Like For sure. the, the pie has been split up, but it is so early in like the creator and digital economy mm. that, yeah, this stuff is no brainer. I don't know if that will work 10 years from now. Um, but yeah, people mistake people doing similar things to them as their competitors. Um, but I think that that is a business framing. We think of ourselves as businesses. We are not businesses. We are humans. Most people who are individual creators are concerned about building a life in pursuit of doing that. They think about themselves as businesses, in which case they think about competition, services, pricing. The reality is if you create a life with people you don't want to hang out with and work you don't want to do, that sucks. Yes. And you're back to square one anyway. Um, yep. So the whole point I, I always say is like, creating the path you actually want to be on, which is way harder than it sounds. It's yeah. And it's interesting because when you flip it in that way, you start to find, at least in my own experience, 
that momentum starts to build and all of a sudden like things start to happen for you right if you just pursue along that path rather than you know market testing various ideas and so on and so forth you can still do some of that uh and doing more like traditional marketing efforts and stuff but if you actually pursue the thing that you want to do some of the other things fall into place i was looking at i was looking at uh a podcast red scare i've never i've never seen it my understanding is it's like oh a, yeah it's a russian woman yeah it's some russian woman and uh something i can't say her last name sound like an idiot right now but who cares they their Patreon, Paul, they make $30,000 a month. Right. For that never heard podcast. Of it. Yeah, and you've never even heard of it. I don't even know how to say the, the girl's name. It's her and <laughs> right. some other girl. $30,000 a month. And I'm guessing that they weren't like, oh, hey, you know, what type of podcast could we create that would make us $30,000 a month? They got on. They started shooting the shit. They talked about the things that they wanted to talk about. And they found ways to find other people who care about that stuff too. People right. were willing to support that. So for you, what was the moment that kind of the big shift, if there was one, or was it just a gradual one between the way that you were working before and the the shift towards that digital, more digital nomad lifestyle? I know you kind of referenced it a little bit in terms of the the report that you created, but was there any moment where it, the frame was really broken and who played a part in that? Or was it just, uh, just Paul talking to himself? Yeah, I think um, for me, it was a very process of like understand the system to leave the system. Hmm. Uh, so my, orientation is very engineering-esque. I want to understand how things work. And I was obsessed with trying to understand how organizations work. And you start to look at things uh, through like textbooks and you learn like tools, equations, ranking, frameworks. Um, and those can be useful early in your career. And then you start learning what's really going on. <laughs> It's mostly power, politics, um, broader business strategy, right? Like the most people don't understand that their experience at a company, the biggest factor is not your boss. It's probably the profit margin of the company and growth rate. Okay, right? what do you mean by that? If you have a high profit margin and a high growth rate, People are going to be optimistic. People are going to be well-paid and there's going to be enough money to go around to um, spread to more employees mm. without the senior people losing power or having to compete for scarce resources, mm. right? So you can predict the behavior based on the money and like hierarchy of the company. Um, so I think when I started to understand these more, um, I combine that with like a very optimistic, I'm like a delusional optimist. Um, we're like, I think things can be better. If only we thought a little deeper, right? I think I've probably toned that back a little, but I had that 
but at the same time saying like, okay, this boss is acting highly rational given their incentives and structure within the company. Yet, like day to day, I was still thinking, okay, I can change this. I can make this better. Um, I think for me where I ended up is like, I don't know if I can have an impact moving up an organization, but at least I can help my peers learn um, and help the people below me and teach them. And I think I developed, I started using, especially in my last two jobs, the company as a platform to do the things I wanted to do. I joined like learning faculty. I taught people, I mentored young people. Um, and I just did this my free time and tried to like minimize the crazy work I was doing. Um, and I think the, the, the moment for me was 2016. I had been doing these quarterly assessments of myself and I had a bunch of principles and it was like, never forget to laugh. Um, never put money above everything else. Uh, all these like leadership principles I cared about that I wrote about in grad school. One of them was the money thing. And I was really upset that my boss wouldn't give me a raise um, mm. and pay me more. I, I think I was doing work bringing in like, I think I like fully executed on projects that brought in like three to $5 million. Yep. And my boss said I was too young to get a raise and like, couldn't be promoted. He was saying he wanted to give me a career Isn't that fucking illegal? First thing first, isn't that illegal? You're too young? I think that that's against the law. Uh, not one to, I mean, you. there's nothing I can do against that. Yeah. You can, if you discriminate against somebody in an interview, maybe, but you yeah. can't say that. Once I you're mean, in there, they can fine. do that shit. Yeah. And like, they're not going to write it down. Um, but um, yeah. yeah, and... I was just finding myself being so upset being in this situation. And I'm like, wait, who the hell have I become? Like one, I'm spending so much money in New York city Two, I don't care about making any more money. I'm making more than I ever expected in my life. Um, and I think I, I had another situation, a company lowballed me, offered me 50 grand less than I was making to work at their company because Hey, I would get to work on their cool mission. Um, and I was like, wait a second. If I want to work on what I want to work on, I can just freelance and work even less instead of going to this company and working five days a week, 50 hours a week, yeah. 50 weeks a year. So I basically like just quit. And <laughs> then for the next couple of months, while they kept me on to transition with it's like setting up my company and figuring out what I want to do. I didn't really have a good plan, but just kind of dove in. Um, but I had been doing some experiments on the side. I'd like given a couple talks about careers. Um, I had done some coaching experiments. Um, so I kind of gained confidence that like, okay, there's gotta be more to life than just like having a job. Yeah. So what role, and just stop me if you're not comfortable talking about this, but I know that you had some pretty major health issues as you were coming up through your career in your your twenties, uh, and what what kind of role did that play in all of this? Yeah, I think that was the first time 
I understood that I had become a worker. Oh. Um, like what my were entire you before life. that? Um, I was just a human, right? <laughs> I was Polly boy. <laughs> like, I yeah, I mean, just like a young kid with like curiosity and like looking for fun and joy and friendship and yeah. family and love in my life. Um, not that I ever lost those things, but it was, I was looking around when I was sick. I had a really bad case of Lyme disease after grad school and I was basically sick for like a year and a half. Um, and was taking time off from work and I was just laying in bed every day and realizing like, I felt so much shame and guilt that I wasn't working. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it was just enormous amount of like embarrassment. I don't even know what the emotions are. It was just like, I felt worthless Yeah. because, and what I realized is like, oh my God, my entire life had become about being this successful student that gets good jobs, that goes to good grad schools, right? Mm-hmm. And I was doing the dumb, like doing consulting work. It's the dumbest shit. Like it, there's just a huge dis- dissonance. And it was like, yeah. I think after coming back from that, that's when... I really started experimenting on the side. It unleashed something in me because I knew like, this is all silly. Why not have fun? Why not go after things that scare me? Yeah. Um, and it was very oriented around helping people. I think helping other people break the frame. Um, however, a lot of people ended up coming to me just like, how do I change careers? And I think through that work, I realized that I don't really like doing that. I can help people transition to another job. It's really easy for me. I've helped people do it. It's pretty straightforward. I want to help people go deeper. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't really lend itself to coaching because most people won't hire you to give them an existential crisis. But um, I think <laughs> <To give> them- <laughs> that's exactly what people are paying me for right now. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's I think- true. A lot of people won't. Yeah, well, I think that's a little more explicit with uh, Buddhism. But um, yeah, yeah, a lot of people just want you to take their pain away. But it, it drove me to write because like, I want to make sense. Like, what am I experiencing? What is all this? Yeah. Nobody would, nobody will talk, even still, nobody, a little because of COVID, nobody will talk about this stuff, honestly. Mm. Everyone's lying. That's- Yeah. Let's talk, let's talk about COVID a little bit because, uh, while you were talking about being sick and feeling like you were, you know, somehow less than because you weren't being as productive. I, I, I've read countless articles now about, uh, you know, it's okay to not be productive during a pandemic. We're all going through this kind of collective trauma and stuff like that. What would you say to these people who, I mean, some people aren't even sick and they're going through a very similar thing to what you you described. So, Yeah, I mean, after recovering from being sick, I, I think a lot of people experience this after going through some sort of crisis. You start to see the world, right? Mm. You start to see that, oh my God, everyone's suffering. <laughs> like, 
Yeah. One thing that happens if you go through a health crisis is everyone tells you their health issues. And oh my mm-hmm. God, everyone's got something. Yeah, no, I, I'm familiar with that. My, uh, I, I studied with a guitar teacher in Chicago who he was, he was obese and he couldn't leave his chair. And he would, I would say, how you doing, Jack? And he'd say, well, you know, this chair is my prison. I can't leave. And he said, he would say, health is a halo that the healthy man wears that only the sick man can see. That always really resonated with me. So do you have advice? I mean, for, for people who are kind of feeling like this right now, where they're like, uh, I mean, I've, I've experienced some of it and I'm just doing freelance stuff where it's like, I'll go an entire day. I won't write anything. I won't, you know, advance my creative agenda. I'll be like, what the hell am I doing with my life? You know, the pandemic almost, I'm going to add one more thing. The pandemic almost adds an extra layer of pressure to a lot of people because they feel like I have all of this time. I should be able to do more. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm probably regurgitating things you've said to me, but like I'd sit with it. I think too, too often we're scared of these emotions, right? The easiest thing to do when you feel bad about not working is to like do something clean. People do people clean. They go on social media, they go for a run, like just sit and like experience the, like, this was the, this was what happened to me when I was sick. It's like, I was so tired. I couldn't do anything. Mm. man it's so painful to to sit with it like it's so uncomfortable um but it's the only way through right um and then i mean don't go too crazy don't throw yourself into a crisis in a day but like start asking yourself like i mean i get a lot of guidance from andrew taggart on this yep he has the question, are you a worker, right? Yeah. And people say, people either have a quick answer, which is yes or no. Um, and they're usually fine with their answer. But then it's like really ask people, really push people. Like, are you a worker? Yep. Eventually, most people say no. And then his next question is, if you're not a worker, um, who are you? Yeah. And who, what, I mean, that can basically be a question for the rest of your life, I think. For sure. And I think that's what I'm exploring. If, if we're not workers, who are we and what are the possibilities for life? Mm. Right. Yeah. You got any answers yet? (laughs) Um, I think one is just untangling all this, like industrial age nonsense we're sitting with Uh, right we have all these like our work beliefs have become compressed to something really simple and catchy which is like you should work you should work hard and you should suffer yeah uh do you think that this is by design no i don't think it's by design i think it's just natural progression of the way that things kind of proceeded yeah maybe it is more by design now but i don't think it's like i don't think there are any evil people pushing this 
right? We're not like, going to have our Nick Cannon moment right now. Our what? Our Nick Cannon moment. You're not going to go off on some <laughs> some Zionist conspiracy right now about how they're they're the ones controlling the work narrative. Well, those those things are they're too they're Reductive. too um it's too easy. It's too easy. It'd be yeah. so convenient if these things were true. Right? Yep. Um it's hundreds of years of different layers of stuff, economic conditions, geographic constraints, uh political yeah. and policy decisions. Um but what I was saying is like we've layered everyone should work. Everyone should work hard. Everyone should suffer. Oh, do that in only a full-time job. Mm. It's not that many of them. Only 35% of Americans work in full-time jobs. Most people don't know that. Um, That's wild. That's a wild statistic. Right. Um, and only working you get paid for is worth doing. Mm. So, man, and if you do all that, you're a good person. So we've tangled up morality with suffering and pain and full-time employment. Um, we've basically gunked together religious, political, economic, and moral um, things in a work package. Mm. And it's crazy. Like, can't even, I don't even know where to start to untangle this. So like, all I, all I know how to do is like write and have conversations with people about it. Yeah. It's kind of wild because at least within Judeo-Christian thought, work is a foundational thing. I mean, immediately after humans are expelled from the Garden of Eden, the very first thing that is laid upon them is women have to bear children and their pains are greatly increased and men have to toil in order to survive. Yeah, work so, is toil. But, but toil. Yeah. those stories made a ton of sense Yeah, in a small scale mm. uh, societies that needed food to survive, right? Yes. Those are very, very, very helpful work beliefs. Yeah. Um, and then the Protestant ethic, like layering on work is good, right? Also small scale economies. Um, we're now in like large scale global economy. Right? Very different. I don't I don't know if we figured out the right work beliefs. So we're basically operating with like the derivations of like work hard, like work is toil is basically hustle culture. Mm. And then work is good is like meaningful work. Work should be fulfilling, work should have an impact, right? Yeah. Um yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know if so those this are is, right. Yeah. This is something I was actually I was talking to my mother about this yesterday that sometimes I actually feel drawn to a lifestyle. And a lot of people are doing this now, like homesteading, for example, right. where, where you do occupy your time with the classical modes of toiling in order right. to survive. And that that might actually be, there's this idea that that might actually be beneficial for us from a psychological perspective that actually that was maybe what we were designed to do is not to just sit around all day and then come home and sit around some more. And, and the way that this came up was we were talking about what happens when you have a, a significant amount of leisure time. And now you would probably be the expert you and Andrew Taggart on 
how much leisure time we have now compared to in the past. I know Ocean Jaro uh, writes about this a lot as well, about that it's gradually increased, but then it's plateaued. And what happens when we have this leisure time is we turn the camera around and instead of looking outward, we start to look inward. And as we do that, we're met with existential crisis, right? So what I'm playing with here is, uh, you know, I've found benefit in, in, you know, staring into the abyss. Uh, but also, sometimes when I'm doing manual work, I feel better off. I feel like, okay, I did this thing today and it felt in line with like, who I am to, to kind of bring it back to that Andrew Tegger question. Yeah. Like it feels good sometimes. So what would you say about that? Yeah, I think so. Two things there. I think, I think your intuition's right around manual work. I mean, yep. many people have gardens and enjoy that. Right. Yes. And many of those people could probably outsource or pay for somebody else to do that work, but they don't. Hmm. Um, so that's a good example. Um, I always think like, I was trying to come up with like, what's the Michael Pollan equivalent of like our modern work beliefs, which is like, yeah. his is like, eat plants, not too much. I forget the rest, but it was like, it's like work, not too much, ideally directly helping someone or do having an impact on something. Yeah. Um, because like people try to have an impact on the world through being a financial analyst for an NGO mm -hmm. and because of like systemic unintended consequences, you can't ever really know if you have an impact um, mm -hmm. and you can get really frustrated and get caught up in all sorts of nonsense at a large institution, which have nothing to do with helping people. Um, sure. It's just way easier to like plant a garden and feed your family. Yeah. It's like you see your kid eating that healthy um, carrot you're planted. It's like, yep. man, that's pretty cool. And then the second thing on leisure is like, Andrew, again, is helping me see this, is like when we quantify leisure, we're quantifying it in the modern modernity sense, which is basically just free time. Um, yep. But historically, we looked at leisure as like very contemplative. Mm. Um and just like questioning who we are, trying to become wise as humans and meditating, things like that. Yeah. Most of how people think about leisure now is like time off from work, a break from work. Like sensory indulgences oftentimes right. comes coupled with that. Need to recharge, yeah. right? Yeah. You need to go on vacation to recharge so you can do exactly. more work. Mm. Um when people hear of people taking time off, like I know you took a break from work um, before this leave. And yes, if I bet it feels really, really, really radical. It did at the time. It felt very radical. It felt and like yeah. guarantee friends around you were like, Oh my God, I, I can't believe you're doing this. Unbelievable. That's funny. The first time for me personally, the first time, and I don't know if it's because people looked at me and was like, okay, this guy obviously is like burnt out or, you know, there's something going on with him. It's probably best if he leaves. Oh. The very first time around, everybody was like, 
Godspeed, Travis. Like, you know, <laughs> like yeah, may the maybe... wind ever be at your back. Well, it's yeah. a thing. Maybe they tell you that then, but they would never tell you before. They would never say, Travis, you should probably take some time off from work. Yeah, no, it's true. They would never do that. They did then. Now, the second time, a lot of people were like, and I don't know if it was because the very first time I was working in finance and there was kind of this understanding that if I had managed my my finances well, that this was a thing that wouldn't cripple me financially. This past time I was working in the arts, working at Second City, and there was this sense of like, how the hell can you afford to do this? Right. And and there was a lot more skepticism about that arose. It could have been time and place, but I think there was also more of a sense of uh in the first time it was I presented it as very experimental. The second yeah. time around, I was like, no, this I'm is done. the thing. Exactly. I'm done. This is what I'm doing now. And people were like, oh, really? Like that sounds risky, sounds radical. Yeah. You're so extreme with some of the things that I heard. That's what people said to me. They say, oh, I could never do that. Or, oh my God, I don't know how I'd pay rent if I didn't know where I was going to make money. It's like, well, you yeah. probably have some savings. But hopefully this, this is another thing that my frame was broken in the mm -hmm. past few years is this is a very American thing. <laughs> very. We are obsessed with work. Um, and the idea that like morality is linked to work is a stronger connection than like maybe two or three other countries. Yeah. Um, and our economic system is, especially for knowledge workers, is built around cities which are very high priced and healthcare is crazy. So people, people can't even imagine it, right? So the idea of taking a break from work is in some ways crazy it is yes right because we we need it to survive um yeah. however in like i've been living in taiwan for the past two years um moving in with your family totally normal even if you're yep. a young adult um work is not the prime aim of life family is um some good and bad things with that of course, of course. and uh, universal healthcare. So nobody ever thinks about healthcare ever. It's yeah. just there. Um, so if people are burnt out, it's like, oh, I can just move home with my parents. Plus, your parents are then like bragging to their friends, like, hey, my my daughter moved back home, get status in the community, right? Interesting. Like that was mind blowing for me, right? Yeah. Um, and just. A different culture, different economic system, different timing and when the economy grew and expectations, yep. norms, different wealth levels, income levels. Speaking um, of economic growth, what would you say to those people who uh, are like, oh, yeah, that's all fine and good, but their, their economy has to be stunted by that orientation? Is. No, I, th you I think, think so. it is. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't have the entrepreneurial... Um, robustness that the U.S. does. Yeah. Um, but I think that is way too simple of an analysis that looks at an economy like the U.S. economy is like 
200 million workers, right? Um, Everyone knows all 200 million of those are not involved in super entrepreneurial stuff. Yes. Probably 70 to 80% of it are just like keeping the engine running, right? Yep. Um, And I've seen some like crazy ideas around like, okay, how do you build like a two economy system? In the US. Two economy system. What is that? Right? So like how do you build something for the masses, which lets people opt into like a universal basic life, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, lower cost of housing, accessible health care, um, work that might contribute to your community. Where you also can have people that you can unleash that unbridled energy, um, tap into the human greed in healthy ways right um we still get a lot of great things from rapid economic growth and innovation it's just that like that system only works for like i don't know 20 30 percent of the workforce yeah so would you say that in taiwan the average person so like the average the average worker is their quality of life significantly better or worse or is it relatively equivalent to the average worker in the united states if you look at it uh economics on a spreadsheet a lot of people would say worse i think if you look at it from a um like anxiety level Hmm. i'd rather if i picking at random i think I don't know. It'd be hard. If if you could guarantee me average in both countries, I'd probably pick Taiwan. You'd probably pick Taiwan. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting. Because that's what, you know, we're, I, I definitely am caught up in the narrative of, you know, who does this economy work for in the right. United States? And it seems to work primarily for the people at the top. Sound exactly like Bernie Sanders right now. Yeah, I think that's oversimplified too. I think think there's a, I think there's a hidden story, um, that people we get lied to about. I think Mm -hmm. it's probably the most successful economy ever. Yeah, and if you look at income by quintile, we've seen more people enter the top two quintiles now we're talking income brackets split into like fifths. Um, Mm -hmm. So they're not evenly split. So you could have more people in the top. However, what's happened is like you've moved, like we're talking like 20, 30 million more people in those top two brackets than 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. And the middle class has shrunk. Many of those middle class people have become upper class. And the lower class has shrunk too. Yeah. So it's complicated. I think um, there's probably not enough conversation about how do we do more of the shifting up. Um, and a lot of the focus on like, how do we fix the bottom is nonsense too, because all the hard problems have been solved. I mean, all the easy problems have been solved. Mm-hmm. All we have left is like complex, hard to solve problems. And nobody really wants to do that uh, because yeah. if you can, especially politically, if you can keep talking about the problem, you can keep getting elected, keep getting elected. Yeah. Nobody gets, there's no incentive to solve a problem. That's true. Oh, um, shit, Paul. And the incentives. Well, 
this this all links back i think to the the work right and this might be where there's like some sort of conspiracy is like our system is built around jobs you have to have a job to get access to resources right this is how we redistribute wealth jobs are redistribution um however like the jobs we're creating kind of suck on average below yeah we're creating more jobs below the median wage than above it um but um like both our political parties are tied to an economy around jobs and consumption Mm. and there doesn't appear to be any alternative now and i haven't seen much i've seen some evidence that people want to change their behaviors but not much yeah um like obama said that he did not do single payer because he said there's three million people working for insurance companies what are we doing with those jobs yeah that is saying we're building our society around the idea that you have to have a job yep to take care of yourself um so as long as that's true we're gonna have that bifurcation like what do you see the trajectory do you think we, a lot has been said throughout history of, are we moving towards a jobless future or is this something that we are stuck with? I think people are always going to find stuff to do. Um, it appears like, I think Yuval Harari has talked about this. Like the, I think the real danger is the emergence of a useless class and only useless in the sense of their relationship to the current system. Right. We already have this. We have millions of people at home right now um, who feel a sense of loss because they're not working. Right. And they feel useless because our culture says if you're not working, you're useless. Um, But we've had some really interesting revelations around this. Like I've seen like Republicans who are typically more like pro like hard work jobs saying like, well, maybe it's better if we pay these people to not work. Hmm. And it's like that, that is a crack. That That, is a significant shift. That's really interesting. Um, But you also at the same time hear things about universal jobs programs. Yeah. Um, Something like that probably seems inevitable. I mean, we do stuff like this all the time. Like any stimulus is a jobs program. Um, Like we always talk about like we need to repair our bridges. And it's like, well, how many, like what's the point of all this? Like is there a better way to like, like all we're doing with that is taking money to keep people occupied so we can give it, have a reason to transfer wealth to them, right? Yeah. Um, and this is where a- Andrew Yang has probably been the only interesting political person of the last 20 years that said, like, no, we shouldn't center it around work because work, it's just not working anymore. The economic yeah. growth rates are not there and we can't create enough good jobs. Mm-hmm. And so the alternative being what we just support these people and hope that they become entrepreneurs. Um, I, I, I sound like a conservative radio talk, talk show host with that question. 
really a straw man argument. Well, but. there there's a debate right now within the Trump administration between Steve Mnuchin, who says we should just send people stimulus checks. Yeah. Um, that's basically universal basic in- income, except mm-hmm. it's not in name. And Larry Kudlow is saying let's do a payroll tax, right? Now, it'll be interesting to see, like, economically, like, people are saying, like, the stimulus check just make way more sense. Um, but, like, a payroll tax is linked to the idea of people should work to get the benefits, right? Yeah. But people are saying, like, well, that's really stupid because we don't have the jobs right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we just closed the economy on purpose. So we can't, like, we can't rely on a myth of saying, like, well, if it's there, if you work hard, you can have it. Yeah. Um, the Ivanka so- Trump myth. Just find another job. Did you see that, that like, ad campaign come out recently? Well, I, I mean... It, on the one hand, that's a, a it productive is, message. Right. It's a produ- yeah. it is a productive message, and it's real sure. in our current economy. People um, feel stuck, and encouraging them to dislodge themselves, you know, to move around within the economy is definitely a a, a beneficial thing. Uh, but at the same time, it's like, okay, where, <laughs> what job do I move to that is going to be beneficial for more beneficial for me? Where are these jobs you speak of? Right. And I mean, this gets to like deeper questions, right? Okay. Yeah. Break the frame of being a worker and what really matters. And I think you get yeah. to things like dignity, right? And um, Chris Arnaud wrote an amazing book around this. And he said, how do people find dig- dignity? He said, people find it, I forget a few of the things, but one of the things that people find dignity, lower income people is their place. They have a sense of attachment to place. Hmm. That worked really well when we had jobs all over the place, but increasingly yep. they're around hubs or wherever Amazon is opening fulfillment centers, right? Yeah. So we're saying in our economy, like, you should go get a job. Okay, you may have to move to an Amazon fulfillment center, but you're going to lose dignity because you're going to lose all your social connection. Yeah. Um, and basically, we don't have a way to measure dignity. Hmm. That's a, yeah. All of these phenomenological uh, aspects of mind, you know, like happiness and dignity, the things that we you know, really want to base the world around, we think would maybe be the most productive way to, to optimize our activity. They're, they're hidden. Right. They're hidden yeah, they within can't the be minds me- of the people. They can't be measured. They can't be measured. Um, like, I, I've realized something about myself. Um, I went through pretty crappy health challenge uh, for a couple of years. And after the fact, I have a very positive view of it. Hmm. It's like, oh, it's great. I learned so much. I grew. Now, I realize I'm kind of tricking myself. <laughs> and another, yeah. another person could easily have been like, oh, my God, that was the worst two years of my life. It ruined my life. It threw me in a different direction, right? Like. I think that's probably just genetic or something I'm just more wired towards. Um, You can't measure that. Um, Yeah. But that having that orientation is super helpful in today's world. Mm. Definitely reduces Um, your own personal suffering and and affords you a lot of opportunities. Uh, 
but this this gets down to a major question and i'm actually going to work with andrew taggart on this specific line of questioning and it's really getting down to the why of all of the things that we're doing right so like why why is it necessarily better to look at your situation with health for example right and to view it in a beneficial light and for that to lift you up you know throughout the the rest of your life it's less it's less unpleasant that we can say about it right yeah. but yeah, besides that we're all kind of just tricking ourselves into <laughs> and now i'm going real deep into the existential well, crisis but well yeah i think you raise a good question right because i think the surface level answer would be like okay that is useful because then i can be more mentally healthy and then i can like be more successful in my life but like yeah until you die like all of us yeah exactly um but i don't know i mean until i have a better answer it just seems better to be in a better mental state if you're going to be around other people yeah it seems like you should try to minimize how much negativity you inflict on others I don't know if there's a good reason for that, but it seems it's it's like a choice I want to make if I can. If you're here, you might as well be happy. That's my working (laughs) hypothesis as well. Or not even happy, just not knowingly unhappy. Yeah, for sure. If you're knowingly unhappy, you might as well do something to try and change that. Yeah, like I mean, just go find I'm, a different job. Yeah, that works, for, but that works, but it wears off. Oh yeah. For um, sure. but like I know, like exercising. Okay, well, let's explore this. Let's do it. Exercising improves your mood for sure. Most people. Most Should people, we be yeah. morally obligated to exercise? Mm, a wonderful question, Paul. Wonderful question. I love that. I do need a moment to think about it, though. If what we're trying to optimize is around those phenomena, the phenomena of mind that are pleasant and and seem wholesome, which, you know, as a, as a Buddhist practitioner, which I am, a lot of the orientation is around cultivating wholesome states of mind. That is, that is a large part of the, the ethics of Buddhism. Uh, loving kindness, things of that nature. So by that, by that logic, I mean, not only, let's just take it this way too. Not only the phenomena of mind that arise out of exercise, but also you are generally healthier. You're less of a burden on the the health system, which in the United States is already, you know, very messed up. And, uh, and in general, you're less of a burden on the people who have to take care of you, so on and so forth for at least a longer duration. So I think we're building a pretty strong case here for, yeah, I think we're morally obligated to exercise. But I'm open to some frame breaking on this one. <laughs> yeah, well, well, it's it's almost become 
like the way our economy is built is like you can pay for everything. So yeah, this is what helps us eliminate the morality mm. or like the burden, right? Because we can just say to ourselves, well, if I'm overweight, just I'll just pay, for, healthcare, pay yeah. for healthcare or I'll pay to go in a senior citizen home. Um, pay for drugs that help me to not be, you know, sad and anxious. Yeah. And that's, that's where like, that's where things got, went haywire with the work, I think, is yeah. for maybe until, in maybe even until like the after World War II, like mass markets really changed the game for everything. Yep. And um, until then, you were kind of bound to your community. Mm. In some ways, yeah. I mean... We saw another time where mass markets created significant upheaval in in the world stage with the advent of intercontinental trade. That was that was a massive shift that that messed a lot of stuff up that that we're still reckoning with today. And you know, in our even further interconnected age, you know, the in some ways the internet can be we can create an equivalency between the internet and the way that it connects people and ships and the way that those connected people in the past, this interconnected, uh, world that we have where, you know, you can, we were talking about it at the beginning. We've come full circle, right? We can sell our ideas to somebody all the way around the world. This mass market thing has completely changed the game. You can create a podcast that gives you $30,000 a month. Well, it's not a mass market. It's a niche market, right? So That's we've, interesting. We've disaggregated the mass markets, right? You can, mm. only, you can only sell Coke and Pepsi to a global world. Yeah. But you can sell a pretty healthy soda to like one region. Yeah. What about take this into the realm of the digital though? Do you think that what's emerging then is like a digital localism? Maybe, yeah. I think, um, yeah. There's all these local spaces, right? Mm-hmm. There's like, there's like the hustle web. There's like the hustle web. The the no code web. There's like the writing web. There's like yeah. the Buddhism web. Like right. Um, yeah. And you get to know these people and you see like, oh, this person knows this person, knows this person. Um, I've kind of like, I feel like I'm part of like this virtual community now of like all these. Like, I know I would love to live with these people locally in person too, but like, this is better. Like, I think growing up, I didn't find a lot of other people with, exact same interest as me Hmm. now i can find like 15 to 20 who are from different parts of the world different interests different backgrounds it's but like we're all so interested in the same things um and it's like yeah we hang out in this like local virtual space um Hmm. and who knows i i think some of these could convene in person over the next 10 20 30 years yeah so I think this is probably a good time to to segue and also plug. So like, as you know, but I don't know if everybody listening does, 
I've been doing these sessions with the STOA. And the STOA is like a, a digital philosophy collective is the way that I put it. Peter Lindbergh, the steward of the STOA, calls it a, a digital campfire. And it's a place where people come together around common interests. And so one of the things I do is I run this breaking the frame session. And I thought it might be fun if we actually walked through that exercise now to sure. do it. So uh, there's like a set of questions. Okay, the first step in this exercise is we reflect back on a time that the frame was broken was broken for us. So we're obviously going to have to uh, look somewhere outside of the things that we've already discussed in terms of work. So let's try to choose something that's completely novel. So tell me a worldview that you previously felt confident about on which you later had a change of heart. So it could be something like, I used to think that I knew X and then it changed. But maybe save what it changed to until later. Just identify the core belief first. Not work-related, you said? Well, I mean, is there anything else? All there is is work, right, Paul? <sighs> trying to think of a good one. It doesn't even have to be a good one. It can just be a plain vanilla. Okay. Yeah, sure. I got one. Let's do it. Yeah, so I think um, one I think a lot of people have is that like doctors are the smartest people and oh. have all the wisdom and knowledge to tell you exactly what to do. Yeah. And so how did that manifest in your life? Like what, what was the, so there was this kind of underlying view that doctors were the smartest and that was kind of the, the lens that you saw the world through. How did that, how did that affect the way that you lived? I didn't until I had health challenges that mm. couldn't be solved easily. And okay. yeah, I, I think it's just like, I mean, until I was 25, I only had like what strep throat and everything always yep. gets solved by a doctor. Um, but yeah. Gotcha. How did that view originally form? I think it's just built in, right? You trust doctors. Hmm. Doctors Do think are this smart. Is part of the... Being a doctor is hard. Yeah. Maybe can you situate this within the, the power... Uh, power, money, prestige hierarchies that you had previously or power, competency, prestige well, hierarchy? Yeah. So I think for the most part, um, prestige and competence work really well in medical profession. It's probably one of the better modern institutions we have. Um, we make it extremely hard to become a doctor. And then give them enormous prestige. Um, and that probably works really well. Um, but you can't, from the outside, determine what kinds of competence people have and if they'll be able to help you. Yeah. The specialization versus generalist thing, you know, there are areas where it's not clear where you should go. You know, do I go to a a dentist? Do I go to a doctor? 
Why do you think you held on to that view? Was it personal to you or was this just a loosely held? Yeah, it's interesting thinking about it. I, I don't know why I held on to it. I think kind of like craving security, right? You want mm. there to be order in the world. You want there to be somebody that can save you. Yeah, for sure. You don't want to come face to face with not knowing. Yeah. How many times did it take of like interactions with doctors where you were like, hold on, I'm not confident that this guy actually, her girl or whatever, knows what they're talking about? You know, I think so. When I was dealing with Lyme disease, I went with all these doctors and nobody could help me. And I was definitely like frustrated, but I don't think the frame was broke. You know what did it for me? I what found did? a doctor that eventually did help me. And you know what she asked me? She goes, what do you think? And then she listened to me. Oh, shit. Listening, breaking the frame. And I was like, holy crap. It was so powerful because this person acknowledged that, I don't know, you, you're probably there yeah. you're here. And it was like, oh, my God. Like, I'm actually the expert of my own health. <laughs> yeah. and it was really empowering but it's it also gives you a taste of what doctors experience right because you don't know yeah um and if you're dealing with chronic issues or systemic issues it's there's no clear answer and it made me realize like the best doctors i know are the ones that read extensively and will tell you directly to your face i don't know Mm. here's what i would do next if it were me but yeah. I'm stumped. Yeah. Oh man. Um, That's rich. That's rich right there. You know, yeah. I, I tend to be nowadays more skeptical of anybody who tells me that they know something than I am of the people who don't know. I have more confidence that somebody who says that they don't know might actually be able to find the right answer than somebody who thinks that they do because they might get locked into right. that. So, well, a lot of stuff is just probability too, especially Mm, like medicine or like, I mean, I understand business thinking and organizations extremely well. I can tell you when somebody's bullshitting, Mm. um, but I can also tell when somebody's telling you something that's highly probable and they're trying to pass it off as fact, right? Yep. I try to talk mostly and like, it's likely this is true but i have no plausibility um but if you want to make money money is like a thought leader you get paid for speeches like nobody wants your probabilistic nonsense oh that's funny you know because john verveke the this is what actually brought us together in the first place was we started listening to john verveke's awakening from the meaning crisis and we did a weekly call where we walked through that and John Verveke's whole thing is, I'm not trying to tell you what the facts are. I'm trying to paint a picture of what is plausible. And he's blown up from that. I mean, yeah. at least within yeah, so, the circles I run in. Yeah, so maybe, um, yeah, but he's not, um, you, you see, he's not getting invited to give a TED Talk. Yeah. <laughs> How do you even get invited to give a TED Talk? I don't even know. I don't know. Um, Who the fuck knows? Who cares? 
but yeah, that is dead. Yeah, I think. I mean, I think there's more space for these kind of conversations. I think podcasts have changed that. Yeah. Um, podcasts were something that broke the frame for me too, hmm. um, because it made me realize there was all these people and ideas out there that I never would have access to otherwise. Yep. Like I listened to the Tim Ferriss podcast and he had people on there that like directly helped me recover from my health crisis. Wow. Like these like strength training things. Like I learned about interval training from him and it was like the right dose and effectiveness of exercise that like helped me like turn the mm. corner. That's great. Uh, I learned about fasting and ketogenic dieting. You could never learn about those things from like the yeah. default institutions for sure um so yeah it was those things broke their frame for me as well that's great um okay what would you recommend to someone and i think that this has actually a a very uh important component of like looking after other people's health and well-being what would you recommend to someone who currently holds your old view to enable them to break free from it is there anything besides, you know, going through the, yeah, I don't know, going through the shit and really having that's, to come to terms with it? That's like the, the biggest question. How do you go through a crisis without going through the crisis? Yes. Um, that's right. Yeah. I think you need to experience something working in a non-traditional way to change your mind. Yeah. Um, for me as for me as having gone through crisis found benefit from them you know and now working with people like as in the capacity of a teacher i oftentimes ponder to myself like do we induce crisis is that something that is wise i tend to think not uh i think that we have plenty of fodder for those things to arise especially if we just sit and meditate you know, we have our own stuff going on up here. I don't need to, to pour fuel on the fire. Uh, but, the, but the question has arose is basically the point. Well, there are positive crises too. I see a lot of people change their beliefs around working when they have a child, hmm. which seems like win-win. <laughs> you think so? Right? Yeah. I mean, a lot of people are like, I want to be better, more available for my children. Yeah. Um, I'm going to quit my job or take a leave or rethink mm -hmm. things, right? For sure. Um, then you have like this meaning over here. It's like, well, you don't have to just sit around and be in crisis. You can just go spend more time helping your kid. And, like, Well, I'm convinced I'm going to go out and I'm going to impregnate somebody. That's, uh, that's all. Um, okay. So do you have any, do you have any advice for people who hold this view? Like, what would you tell them? How would you, how would you in a caring way argue with somebody who's like, no, doctors know exactly what they're talking about and we should listen to everything that they tell us or some variation of that extreme? Yeah, I think my advice would be to like, try something that's not harmful, but that might change your mind. Mm. Okay. Right? Um, I don't know. This is so hard. 
Bulletproof coffee? Like, yeah, I know. And this is the good shit. Yeah. This I is mean, the medicine, tr- Paul. Actually, I think fasting for a day. Fasting? Yeah. Can be a breaking the frame activity mm-hmm. because fasting is one of these things that people think they will literally starve if they don't eat every day. Yeah. And if you fast for a day, like you're fine. Yeah. You don't even have like some of the weirder side effects from like fasting for a couple of days. Yep. Um, I mean, and- I recently went 45 days only eating two meals a day and I was, I was fine. In fact, I lost a lot of weight. I'm healthier now. Yeah, and you realize if you fast for one day, you'll be hungry at noon, but then like two hours later, you're like, wait a second, that hunger disappeared. What is that? It's gone. Where did it go? Um, yeah, so I, I think that's probably one. Love it. Um, yeah, I don't know. What else? Nice. So this question kind of is a little bit difficult to apply to to this one, but... Are any of the mental patterns that kept you stuck before at play in your new view? Yeah, for sure. Um, What ones? I think I'm still just, I'm very protective of letting new views in. Hmm. I think like, especially with health stuff, I've been dealing with some health stuff recently. Um, I'm still very skeptical of like stuff that's a little too woo woo for me. Mm. I'm still very tied to like a rational sense of things. Got it. Um, I think it's good to have like a healthy skepticism, but Mm. I know at the same time, like too much skepticism keeps you from actually helping yourself sometimes. It can, it can indeed a lack of experimentation, you know, what do they say that insanity is trying the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result? Yeah. So for me, I think it's like letting smaller doses in. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I try to like change one thing at a time. I don't let like 10 new things in at a time. I try to Got like it. try one thing and let it in for a week and see what happens. Yep. Yeah. That's interesting. It's like, I talk to a lot of people about being frustrated at their jobs. I had somebody reach out to me last week. He's like, I think I should quit my job. Can we talk? And we conceive of everything as like all or nothing leaps. Mm. And I told him, I'm like, I want you to do a one week challenge. Mm. Write down like things you're not willing to do. Like work past five and see if you can go a week doing these things. Right. Mm. Um, What is the smaller dose you can do? And at the end of the week, you feel like you really just need to quit do it but like i think people are not willing to try anything they just want to go all out right they want the big massive transformation oh yeah um but what if you could just stop working at two on a day why is that so crazy just stop one day out of a year yeah just stop answering emails and like ignore your boss right yeah Um, That can break the frame for some people. Can do. Can do. I like it. Nice. Okay. So the next stage in this exercise is we're going to take it and apply it to uh, something that we hold as like a personal view right now. Okay. So the way that this is going to go is you're going to say, and I know that statement. Okay. And this should be 
this is something I'm still workshopping in terms of how to find the the right kinds of uh, views that really lend themselves to this exercise. But it should be something that is is meaningful to you, something that's driving your behavior, something that is, uh, yeah, something that you kind of hold dearly. Okay. Yeah. And then I'm going to, in response, state a plausible alternative. I'm going to try to give a steel man uh, alternative that then in the third step of the exercise, you're going to argue on behalf of that alternative. So okay. you're basically going to try to convince me and you that that alternative is the best way. And then on the last step, I'm going to argue on behalf of your original statement. And this is going to, uh, okay. and I want you to feel into somatically, how does it feel to have somebody tell you why the thing that you think is correct? Okay. So yeah, I, you got this, one? this will be interesting because I feel like I'm always both sidesing myself in my head anyway. Um, Try to choose something maybe that you haven't done that with, if there is yeah. one. So I know... That writing is a valuable activity. Is a valuable activity. Writing and like self-reflection. Writing and self so written self-reflection or yeah. all forms of self-reflection. Written self-reflection. Say written self-reflection. Say written self-reflection is a valuable form or is a valuable activity. Okay. This is always the hard one of the harder parts is coming up with a viable alternative when when you hold that same belief. Uh, okay. So could it be the case that written, this is, let's take it this place. Could it be the case that written self-reflection could actually lead someone into a, a place that maybe they would have benefited from having not gone there, right? Could it lead them into a, a tailspin, for example, right? Where if they actually worked out what they really thought about the world, because that's what I think, you know, you're, sure. you're um, stating is that working out what we actually think about the world is a good thing. Could it be the case that that actually could produce some, some overall negative results? So now you just go off on why that could possibly be the case. Yeah, I mean, I agree, I agree with that too. Um, I mean, the classic case would be like Ted Kaczynski. Yeah. Right? Very incredible, well thought out. Incredible writer. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean. That's he knew like, what he thought. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that led to a lot of harm. A lot of harm um, for himself and others. Would yeah, you go so, to Ted Kaczynski and say, you know, like if you, if you knew the future, forget about the butterfly effect and all of that shit, right? Just in yeah. terms of actual Ted Kaczynski's well-being, would you go to him and say, hey, Ted, maybe don't do so much written self-reflection. Maybe just uh -huh. live, brother. <laughs> would you say that to him? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. I mean, knowing what we know now, it might direct him towards, I mean, 
you might realize that like a lot of the experiments done on him were done by the government. Yeah. But that's yeah. a whole side conversation. Whole other side conversation. Yeah. Okay. So now I'm going to argue on behalf of your original, your original view. So I think that because of the nature of the mind as a system, something that has various component parts that aren't always necessarily unified behind a certain uh, pattern of thinking. We can be of two minds of a thing, for example. Writing things down, taking a more linear, a more linear approach to, uh, to discerning what it is that's going on inside of our heads can be illuminating. It can be significantly beneficial. Uh, yeah. How does that feel, Paul? How does it, is that? So first off, is that your reasoning? Is that the reason why you think it's beneficial? Yeah. Um, I mean, because of the challenge I offered, I'm feeling a little more uncertain about it. <laughs> but was um, that the, what was originally in your mind when you said, like, I think that writing and written self-reflection is beneficial? Was it along those lines of like really parsing out what's what? Yeah, I think um, I think I'm realizing it also is paired with an optimism belief in mm-hmm. mind too. Yeah. Um, for sure that you can find ways to like improve and better and gain more wisdom in the world Mm. um but now i'm seeing like you could it almost needs the optimism because you can also go in a nihilistic direction too yeah i mean most of my writing does tend to a nihilistic direction so yeah uh i want to offer a different challenge now actually to to the original view and that is that Written language actually is not reflective. I'm going to take almost like a the uh, Wittgenstein uh, argument that written language is not actually reflective of what of reality. That language actually does violence. So I think Watts argued some measure of this as well. Language cuts up the real yeah. and you know, linearizes it when actually it's a multi-threaded experience and it's reductive that I think that that's an even better argument versus like that it can lead people to dark places. It's that it's actually not, you're not even doing something that's real. You're taking reality and you're doing violence to it, cutting it up. What do you say about that, Paul? Yeah, I think that makes sense. I think the biggest takeaway from writing for me is that like, Oh man, there's like way more than this. Right. I think that's why I often end my writing like, but what do I know? (laughs) But all of this could be ridiculous. Yeah. Right. Or like, I think a lot of times I'm just trying to acknowledge that like things are more uncertain than we think. Mm -hmm. I think, that often takes naming something or creating identifying things as like an object as a way of saying like, Oh, you got this object in this view. I got this object too. Therefore like it's probably more than this. Mm. Right. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that's what interests me most about like writing in today's age is 
those are all the most interesting writing I'm reading these days. Yeah. Um, there's definitely like, I mean, there's like the old default narratives, which are like, I mean, it's fascinating. Many people are still stuck in these, like it's either this or this. And those are so boring. <laughs> yeah. I found um, that as well. And it's rarely ever two things. Yeah. Uh, it so, could be none or everything. Or neither this nor that, or both this and that. Right. A lot of things yeah. are both, right? Yeah. Um, this is why problems don't get solved. It's because both answers are true. Yeah. Um, and people, it all comes back to breaking the frame, right? If you acknowledge both are true, you're then again don't know anything. You don't. You're uncertain. Um, Is that the truth? And then that's gets back to like okay, the what you just have to contemplate like what is there? What is? Or an alternative? Maybe we don't contemplate at all. Maybe yeah. we just go, just do it. Like we take the Nike advice, Nike approach to life. Just do it. Who cares? It's an experiment. Yeah. As long as you're not too experimental. <laughs> not yeah. trying to start a state-sponsored utopia. State-sponsored utopia. Yeah. We'll, we'll try to avoid that. I'm going to make my utopia not state-sponsored so I avoid all of the problems. And it'll yeah, be perfect. Just got to keep things small enough scale. Well, exactly. I mean, that can go awry too. Um, I love it. Nice. Well, yeah. is there anything that you want to uh, plug or, you know, what's, uh, what's alive for you right now that you're working on? Um, very much the writing. I think yeah. that's, for me, the writing is moved beyond making sense of things. It's really just to find the other people with questions about people that are hungry for more than like, this is how the world works. Mm -hmm. The straightforward um, answers. And people who have struggled with, okay, am I more than a worker? If not, what's next? I don't know, but let's try to figure it out together. Yeah. It's always um, and that's together. Yeah. And that's boundless.substack.com. Boundless.substack.com. Okay. That's great. Well, Thank you, Paul. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to see more from Breaking the Frame, please visit breakingtheframe.org. There you'll find writings, guided meditations, events, and other resources for learning to navigate between worldviews.